Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. From the corner of his eye, he caught movement. As anyone would, but especially a night shift cop, he turned his attention toward whatever was moving along the sidewalk. It was in between the puddles of light which spilled from the street lamps across the road. The officer squinted as he waited for the shadow to emerge into the next circle of light. It made no effort to hide itself, and when it became visible, the officer saw it was only a young man. Almost a boy, really. And because a public intoxication arrest would take at least an hour for him to process, and his shift ended in 45 minutes, the officer ignored the man's drunken gait and tweaking fingers. There wasn't anyone around that this drunk could bother. But then the man saw the police car. He jerked sideways and beelined across the street toward it. Cripes, that's jaywalking now, the officer said, chuckling to himself. If this bum tried giving him any grief, he would just threaten him with a ticket. That always sent the tough guy winos and junkies scrambling. But hey, this guy was coming in fast now. And was that fear on his face? The officer rolled his window halfway down. Hey buddy, you doing okay out there? He asked, warmly. The man showed no sign of slowing. Alright bud, that's close enough until I understand what's going on here but the stranger kept coming until he pressed his slim body right against the officer's door. I need help. Someone's coming, coming after me, the strange man panted. As drunk as his movements had looked, his eyes were cold and sober. His face bore an expression of genuine fear. All right, let's hear about it. What's going on? Are you in immediate danger? Yes, yes, I need help right away. The man spoke like he was either much older than he looked or from a different time period. The officer wondered if this was some former theater kid who broke his brain with cheap drugs when he got to college. He'd heard too many similar stories in recent years. Okay, if you're not safe here, we need to go down to the station. The sta- Oh, of course. Yes, please take me to the station, said the man, again with the odd cadence. He didn't have an accent but the way he emphasized certain words made it sound like English wasn't his first language. All right, agreed the officer. He gestured for the man to step back so he could open his door. He got out, took two steps toward the rear door, and signaled for the man to get in. The man stepped forward until he saw the hard plastic seat and barred windows. Oh, no, you don't understand. I'm not a criminal. I need help. Look, I don't know you from Adam. Until I can ID you and get your story straight, I'm not letting you sit up front with me. But you can't lock me up, the man said. He sounded slightly feminine. 
Never mind, never mind. I'll look elsewhere. Someone will help me, I'm sure. Good night, officer. Good night. Who says good night to another grown man, let alone a cop, the officer thought. Sorry, guy, I can't let you wander off like that. Why not? The man asked, turning back toward the officer. Because I need to make sure you're okay out here on your own. Listen, I'm supposed to go home in a few minutes. I'd love nothing more than to let you go. Let's just talk. He touched the strange man's bicep lightly. It was meant as a friendly gesture, but the man tensed. Hey, I don't want to fight you. Just come back to the car with me. The officer saw the punch formulate in the subject's eyes before it manifested in any other part of his body. As the man's fist swung out and up toward the officer's jaw, he stepped backward, then rocked in to catch the man's arm and use the momentum to push him off balance. They both went to the ground, the officer with his knee firmly planted on the subject's upper back. Dispatch, I've got one in custody, he said into his radio. He didn't even sound out of breath. Beneath him, the man begged, Please, just keep me safe. Wherever you're taking me, please just keep me safe. Don't let anyone get me. Once the handcuffs were on, the arrestee quit resisting. He stood when the officer lifted him, and ducked when the officer shoved him into the back seat. He was silent during the whole ride to the station. In the rearview mirror, he looked oddly serene. At the station, and with another officer present, the arresting officer performed a blood alcohol evaluation on the young man and found that he was, shockingly, stone-cold sober. Or he hadn't had a drink anyway. Drugs were harder to test for in real time, but the man's eyes were clear, and he seemed to be cognitively functioning for the most part. He still wasn't making a lot of sense, but he seemed to have realized this on his own and voluntarily gone quiet. He peacefully allowed the officers to look him over for track marks or bruises. He seemed eager to prove he wasn't on any sort of substance. The officers handed him over to a detective who could hopefully get to the bottom of the situation. So I'd like you to tell me who it is you're running from and why, the detective asked. His name was Brian Brainerd, and he was a 26-year veteran on the force. He had experienced just about everything a cop can experience on the local level, and he had the scars to prove it, including a bullet wound on his shoulder below his left clavicle. He had once been a hard charger, but age, experience, and injury had shown him the benefits of connecting with people on a mental or emotional rather than a physical level. He maintained his former tenacity, but utilized different tactics. It's my husband. I escaped from him and he's trying to take me back, the young man said. You're, oh, so you're... Brainerd politely tried to downplay his surprise. When he had first graduated from the academy, his peers and superiors were still using the term queer as a pejorative. As the culture evolved, he did his best to evolve with it, but he still found his reactions to meeting homosexuals mirrored himself from 1997. I'm married, yes, the man said, not noticing or reacting to Brainerd's awkwardness in the slightest. Then his eyes went wide and he said, Oh, oh right, of course, that must seem strange. Strange? No, 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 I'm just... From another era, I suppose. Please, I hope I didn't make you uncomfortable. Not at all. I momentarily forgot how the situation must look, the young man said. He had such a bizarre way of talking. The other guys said you wouldn't give them your name. It's not that I don't want to cooperate, he replied, apparently leaving it at that. Brainerd realized he wasn't going to elaborate and said, Well, we found your driver's license in your wallet. It says your name is Darian Whitney. 
Darien, the man repeated, testing the name. Does that seem familiar to you? Brainerd asked. Darien nodded politely. Good. So now that that's out of the way, how about you tell me where you're from? I've lived here my whole life, Darien replied. He said it with total conviction, but Detective Brainerd knew it was a lie. He suddenly wondered if he was sitting across from a psychopath. He had met a few in his time. They were nearly impossible to read. Well, look, Darian, I don't want to accuse you of anything, but I know that's not true. I can't help you unless you start being honest with me. Darian looked utterly confused. His eyes flicked back and forth as he searched for an answer that would satisfy the detective. Brainerd watched him squirm for a minute, then got bored. Your license is from California, he said. You have an address there. The other name on your lease is Reese Whitney. Is that your husband? Darian pinched his eyebrows together and said, No. Brother? asked Brainerd. Darian looked like he was about to say no again, but paused and slowly nodded. Yes, yes, Reese is my brother. Has he been looking for me? I can't say I'm sure, Brainerd said. We called him, but he didn't answer. It's still early, so maybe he'll call back when he wakes up. Is he someone you would be safe with? I think so, Darian replied, but he sounded distant and unsure. Well, let's talk about your husband then. Heard the front door unlock and creak open. He stood up, having been sitting on the top stair for hours. His butt was numb. His legs felt rusty. He called out, Darian? Gage? But no one replied. He called out, Mike? but still didn't get an answer. He started pounding on the door. He didn't care who was out there, he just wanted to get out of the basement. His camera had died, and his only light with it. He had been stuck in darkness for... He didn't know how long. At least two hours, he guessed. Without his phone, which he had set down while gathering equipment to use in the basement and forgotten to pick back up, he couldn't tell the time, or, more importantly, call for help. He hadn't been sure if anyone would return to the house after Darian and Gage, or whoever they were now, had left. Hang on, Mike's voice said on the other side of the door. He undid the lock, and Reese practically jumped through the door. Mike, they're gone. Darian and Gage, they wouldn't wake up. Then they locked me down there, and then they went... I'm not sure, but they left, and they're gone. Mike didn't look remotely surprised. His chubby face bore a guilty, naughty child expression. Looking into Mike's puppy dog eyes, Reese realized the truth. He felt his fear turn to anger and rise in his throat. Did you know this would happen? Is this why you brought us here to investigate your house? You have every right to be angry, Mike said. But please, please understand that I didn't have a choice. They were trapped here, and I've been trapped with them. Who, that old farmer and his wife? Yeah. What do you mean you've been trapped here with them? I thought you said you didn't live here. Well, yeah. Mike turned his palms upward and held them out to the sides. Do you think I can afford to pay a mortgage and rent on an apartment? I'm dead broke, barely getting by. And I can't sell this place because every time I've tried, they've done something to scare off the buyers. I could let the bank take it, but then my credit would be destroyed and... Did you sacrifice my brother for good credit? Reese asked. There was murder in his tone. Mike pointed at him like one might point at an aggravated dog. Don't oversimplify it. You don't know what my life has been like. What you went through last night? Imagine going through it for a year. 
Well, I hate to be the one to tell you, but you're going to be stuck here even longer now because you're going to help me bring them back, Reese said. I can't. Even if I wanted to, I don't know where they went or where they are now. Besides, they're not your people anymore. How do you know? Reese asked. His anger masked his fear well, but Mike still picked up on it. Because they told me to bring them bodies. Your brother and your friend are basically like cars right now. They got hijacked, pulled out of the driver's seat. So, are they still inside themselves somewhere? Reese asked. Mike looked down. That, I don't know. Aren't you the paranormal investigator? Reese's teeth were ready to bite with venom, but he stopped himself. Mike was right. Reese was asking all these questions of the wrong person. He had the equipment. Well, most of it. The REM pod and SLS camera had been ruined by whomever now controlled Gage, but he still had a couple of cat balls in the spirit box. Don't move, he ordered Mike. What are you going to do if I do? Mike asked indignantly. As he walked off to gather the gear he needed, Reese said, I uploaded all our footage to the cloud. If you don't help me, the world's going to see that footage and I'll tell them what you did. Kill me if you want, but my editing guy already has everything we shot last night. While Reese was upstairs, he made sure this was true. He had already uploaded all of the footage leading up to Darian and Gage going to sleep, but everything he had shot after that was on the GoPro he'd been trapped in the basement with. He started the upload from his laptop while he was upstairs searching their bags for any extra equipment he had forgotten about. When he came up empty, he ran down to the basement to collect the cat balls and spirit box. Looks like this is it, he said, returning to the living room. What are we supposed to do? Mike asked. I don't know, man. This is a first for me. You should probably just sit it out, honestly. Fine with me, Mike said. He stared nervously at the spirit box on his coffee table. Don't forget, um, I still have that Ouija board. Looked at the cedar chest where, the previous night, Mike had told them he had stored the board that most likely kicked this whole shebang off. He considered it for a moment, then decided a Ouija board felt too risky. Something about having your hand on the planchette as it moved. It was like the spirit or spirit's hands were touching yours, and maybe they were. I think the box will be plenty, he said. He set the cat balls on either side of the table and put the spirit box between them. He powered the box on, and Mike flinched at the abrupt hissing pulse which jumped out of its speaker. What the hell is that? Mike asked. It's jumping between radio bands to try to catch different frequencies. I don't feel like explaining it right now, but basically ghosts or spirits can use different frequencies to talk to us. As if to prove a point, the box said. That's probably one of them, Reese said. What do you mean? That was some talk show host. He got through for a second before that thing scanned on Bob. Reese shot him a dirty look. The box said, Real. And Mike shut up. Okay, Darian, if you're here, touch the cat ball on my right, Reese said. Mike gawked at the ball as they waited for the signal. Three seconds went by, then five with nothing. The cat ball to Reese's right started flashing. Reese instinctively smiled but the expression didn't linger. The realization of what the flashing cat ball meant struck him hard. He said, All right, thanks, bro. Just to confirm, Gage, go ahead and touch the one on my left. Whatever had taken Darian so long did not hinder Gage. No sooner had Reese's mouth closed than the ball on his left began flashing. Has it been you guys talking to us through the spirit box? Reese asked. The box pulsed and pulsed 
and finally said, It has. Mike shivered. He looked pathetic sitting on the couch. He had curled his legs beneath himself and tucked his hands under his shins like a child watching a scary movie. Only this wasn't a movie. This was real. Reese's brother and their friend were really spirits, and their bodies were really out in the world somewhere. We've got to bring them back here. Their bodies, I mean, Reese said to Mike. After that, I guess we'll just have to figure it out. Unprompted, the box said, Fight. Detective Brainerd shut his laptop and dropped his eyebrows, which had been chronically raised throughout Darian Whitney's testimony. According to Darian, he was actually a woman named Vivian from the 1930s who had been murdered by her husband for having an affair. She and her husband, Jude's, had both been trapped in a haunted house because he was some sort of magician. These were not Darian's terms, ghost, haunted, magician, but they were words Brainerd assigned to the story so he could keep track of the nonsense coming out of Darian. It was exquisitely clear that this young man needed to be evaluated at the hospital. One of the day shift officers stuck her head into the interview room and she said, Brainerd, there's somebody here to see your detainee. Who? he asked. Darian gripped the table in front of himself. He was wearing a belt with handcuffs in the front now. Detective Brainerd had swapped out the original handcuffs for this device to make Darian more comfortable while he told his story. He says he's a friend? the officer answered with questionable certainty. Brainerd looked at his pale, sweating subject. Darian looked markedly worse upon the mention of a friend waiting for him. Even if whoever was in the lobby was a friend, Brainerd didn't think it was a good idea for him to visit at the moment. Tell him Darian can't see anyone right now. I'm going to drive him to the ER and get him an eval. Want me to let the friend know? asked the officer. No! Darian shouted. The officer looked blankly from him to Brainerd. Brainerd pursed his lips and shook his head. The officer said, All right, I'll tell him to get lost. Thanks, Kelly, said Brainerd. Then he looked at Darian and asked, Are you up for a car ride? Darian got into the back seat more willingly than the first time, but still seemed nervous about it. Brainerd didn't fault him and patiently waited for him to situate himself. Once Darian was settled, Brainerd reached across him to buckle the seatbelt. All good? he asked. Darian just nodded, staring at the floor. Okay, it's just a little over five minutes to the hospital. Sit tight. Brainerd got behind the wheel, radio dispatched to let them know they were on their way, and pulled away from the police station. There was a stoplight a block down the road, and when they reached it, it was red. As they waited for the light to turn, Vivian, as Darren, looked over her shoulder. A prickly sensation was creeping up her neck, under her hair. It made her digits tingle. It made her want to get up and run. When she looked back through the barred rear window, she saw why. A blue car she only vaguely recognized was pulling out of the police station parking lot and turning toward them. Detective, she said. Yeah. I think my husband might be following us. The light turned green and they rolled through the intersection. Soon they were going 25 miles per hour, leaving the police station behind. The blue car kept its distance, only matching their speed once they had gotten a decent lead. Brainerd clocked the trailing vehicle and nodded grimly. Well, don't worry about him. You're safe with me, and the hospital has good security. They won't let anybody in. They made a left turn and Brainerd accelerated quicker than usual. Behind them, 
the blue car also made the turn, and also sped up quickly. The driver didn't keep the same respectful distance this time. This time, he kept accelerating until he was a bumper's width from Brainerd's car. Brainerd pressed the gas, gaining an extra five miles per hour, but the blue car stuck with him. Hey, are you still buckled tight back there? He asked Arian. Of course, Vivian replied. Brainerd's hands went for his radio. He picked up the mic, but before he lifted it to his mouth, the car's rear end jerked hard to the right. The impact made Brainerd drop the radio mic. It flew through the air, stretching out its spiral cord as it swung across the cab, struck the plexiglass separator, and fell to the floor in front of the passenger seat. The car spun in a semicircle, screeching as it slid. Vivian smelled burnt rubber, sour in Darian's nose. When they finally stopped moving, Brainerd glanced over his shoulder. You good? He asked, sounding remarkably level. I'm not hurt, Vivian replied. Brainerd was already searching for the dropped mic. He was bent over the passenger seat, feeling for it with his right hand. His left went to his seatbelt, intending to unbuckle it. Fortunately, he wasn't fast enough. If he had been, he might have been thrown through the windshield. Vivian warned him with a scream just as the blue car rammed them a second time. There was a sound like a gunshot below Vivian's seat. Brainerd's head hit the glove box with a crack, and he went still. The car rocked, nearly tipped over, then settled. The forced slide had blown out the back tire on the passenger side. The driver of the blue car stepped out and Vivian recognized her husband, warden, and murderer, Jude, disguised as the boy Gage Kepler. He walked around the battered police car and tried Vivian's door, which was locked. Unfortunately, the driver's door opened easily for him. Jude reached across the unconscious detective's lap and pulled the keys out of the ignition. His eyes went to the detective's exposed gun. Please just leave him alone, Vivian said. He's been kind to me and didn't ask to be involved in this. I'll come with you willingly if you promise to let him be. After fiddling with the keys for a moment, Jude unlocked the car's back door. He opened it and gestured for Vivian to slide out. She held her cuffs out, showing them to Jude and nodding at the keys in his hand. You'll behave? Jude asked. Vivian nodded solemnly. Jude used the little handcuff key to unlock the cuffs, and Vivian slid the belt over her head. Then, without any warning, she pushed past Jude and ran. She cut straight across the street, enjoying Darian's speed and reflexes. She had never stood a chance against her husband physically before. This body offered her new opportunities, new defenses against his spiteful rage and violent nature. Like a ghost, she vanished through some bushes lining the sidewalk. Enraged, Jude growled. He, on the other hand, had been greatly disappointed by Gage's so-called man's body. When he had been in his early twenties, he could have hauled two bundles of lumber on his shoulders. Gage's body felt more like a child's to him. It was uncoordinated and underdeveloped. Jude couldn't understand how a man could be so narrow in the chest and skinny in the arms, yet still have a fluffy belly protruding like a fresh pregnancy. Not wanting to rely solely on his tender, borrowed flesh, he pulled the 9mm pistol from Detective Brainerd's belt before chasing after his wife. A single siren wailed in the direction of the rising sun. Neither Mike nor Reese noticed as they cruised through the neighborhood in Mike's truck, but a second siren caught both of their attention, and a third made them grimace at each other. Mike, who was driving, said, Do you think? It's gotta be them, said Reese. 
Who else would it be this early in the morning? Mike stopped the truck and rolled down the windows. Reese understood what he was trying to do and leaned out of his side. He closed his eyes, feeling that this would somehow help him hear better. The three sirens were slowly converging. I don't know this town at all. Any idea where they are? He asked Mike. Mike had his eyes closed, too. I think it sounds like they're going to the park. Mike described Whaley Park, which was located in the center-north part of town, while he got the truck moving again. I'll tell you, Mike said. If the cops are going to the park, it could just be for a drug overdose or something. Lots of people use the park for unsavory activities at night. Reese considered this for a moment, then shrugged half-heartedly. He said, at least it's somewhere to start. A couple of minutes later, Mike said, hang on, maybe they're not going to the park. How come? Reese asked, apprehensively. If the sirens weren't going to the park, then they needed to reroute. He could see a playground up ahead. It sounds like they're still somewhere over there. Mike pointed toward Reese's window, making a circle with his finger. He was right. The park was straight ahead, but the sirens were over to the right. When they passed through the last intersection before the park, Reese saw exactly where the sirens had gone. Up the road, perpendicular to the one they were following, a police car was turned sideways. Its windows were cracked, and one of its tires had been reduced to a flap of rubber hanging over the wheel. Two much healthier-looking police cars were parked on either side of it, and two officers were dragging a much unhealthier-looking man from the front seat. As they passed the shocking scene, Reese saw an ambulance spin around a corner further up the road. Stop! Stop! It was back there! Reese yelled. But Mike sped ahead toward Whaley Park's parking lot. He brought the truck to a screeching halt and pointed into the park. He asked, Isn't that one of yours? Reese saw a man walking briskly across an open green area toward the playground. The man had a gun. He was walking away from the truck so Reese couldn't see his face. He was walking with a strange gait, too, but Reese still recognized his friend Gage. Based on the gun and Gage's determined stride, Reese guessed that Jude Kelly had possessed his body. That meant poor Vivian was inside Darian's. So where was she? Should we get out? Mike asked. Reese answered by unbuckling and opening his door. Mike said, Hold on, I think we should strategize here. We don't have time, Reese said. Gage has a gun and he's looking for my brother. Mike squinted at the walking figure, then jerked back. Maybe his eyesight wasn't very good. He hadn't noticed the gun until Reese pointed it out. Oh, oh, I don't think I can do this. I'm sorry, but... Hey! Reese yelled across the open park. Mike gulped and shrunk into his seat. Gage stopped mid-stride and pivoted. Seeing Reese, his eyes narrowed and he raised the pistol. Reese threw one hand up above his head and, with the other, pointed at the crossroad they had passed where police and paramedics were still working. They'll hear it, he said, remarkably calm. If you fire that thing, they'll be over here in seconds. And what about it? Gage said. No, no, but it wasn't Gage. Reese couldn't think of him that way. He was speaking with the late farmer Jude Kelly, an unhinged, undead farmer who claimed to be a witch. They'll have guns too. They'll kill you. That new body you got won't do you any good. It's not much good as it is, Jude sneered. Reese started to ask, where's... But Mike interrupted by whispering something through the window. Reese looked over at the playground. 
then back at Jude slash Gage. He said, You won't find Vivian here. Oh yeah? You know where she is? Jude asked. He still had the gun aimed at Reese's head, and Reese was trying not to let that dissuade him from unspooling the string of lies he had planned. We do. We found her and hid her from you. How do I know you're not lying to me? Jude asked. Reese opened his mouth, but Mike spoke first. Look around you, Mike yelled out of the truck. Do you see her anywhere? How do you think we knew to come here for you? Reese had to admit, Mike was finally becoming useful. Mike had also been the one to spot the bottoms of Darian's shoes just inside the mouth of a tunnel on the playground. They could see his brother from their angle, but from Jude's, he was invisible. You, Jude said accusingly. He swung the gun toward Mike, although it wasn't quite aimed correctly. You know what I can do. You know what happens if you resist me. What's he mean? Reese whispered. I told you there was a reason I moved out of that house, was all Mike said. How about this? Reese now called over to Jude. You leave the gun right there, walk over here peacefully, and we'll take you to Vivian. We'll take you two away from them, he pointed toward the flashing lights up the road, and you can sort out whatever you need to. Then maybe you can give back my brother and my friend? You know how long I've waited for this body, Jude yelled. Reese knew asking for the bodies back was a risk, but he felt he had to in order to convince Jude he was making a sincere offer. To pretend he was going to let Jude and Vivian go on wearing Gage and Darian as costumes would have been far too passive to be believed. Fine, we can sort that out later. Will you at least put the gun down and come with us? Reese asked. Jude hesitated for a moment, taking a long look back over his shoulder to make sure Vivian hadn't popped out from behind a bush or a tree to run farther away, then stooped toward the ground and set Detective Brainerd's pistol in the grass. He walked slowly toward Reese and Mike. Get in the back seat, Mike instructed Jude once he was within normal speaking range. Jude shot Mike a rude glance through Gage's eyes, but he obeyed. Reese said, Buckle your seatbelt so the police don't stop us. And Jude did. Get the gun, Reese yelled toward the playground. Gage's eyes went wide as Jude realized the enormous mistake he had just made. Vivian backed out of the tunnel, leapt from the playground, and crossed the open area in a flash. She picked up the pistol and aimed it at Jude, but all Reese saw was a gun pointed at Gage's head. Don't forget he's in my friend's body, he pled. I know where to shoot him without killing him, Vivian seized, warning Jude but not comforting Reese in the slightest. Vivian held the gun remarkably steady as she walked toward them. Reese, I think it'd be best if you and Gage rode in the bed so he doesn't try anything, Mike said. Won't that tip off the cops? They've got to be all over this area by now, Reese replied. Just stay low and I'll do my best to avoid them. Jude whined. I will not ride in the... Do what he tells you, Vivian ordered, waving the gun so it pointed just past Gage's head. Reese wondered if he should take the gun from her. She had no attachment to Gage and only hatred for her husband not to mention reason to fear him. Ending him would only serve to benefit her, even if it meant innocent Gage's body was destroyed in the process. But for the time being, he let her keep the gun while he and Mike tied an extension cord that had been in the bed of Mike's truck around Gage's wrists and ankles. They both prayed none of the patrolling cops would happen by this particular corner of the parking lot until they were finished. Take him far away from me, Vivian said, pleading through Darian's lips. 
We can't, Reese said breathlessly as he fought one of Gage's legs. You're not considering taking us back, are you? Don't you know what that would mean? I'd rather shoot all three of you right here and be done with it. I'd rather go to an actual prison than be trapped in that prison with him. I know, Reese said. He couldn't come up with anything better. What if we could, I don't know, free you? Asked Mike. Isn't there some sort of afterlife you could move on to? Darian's face remained hard with Vivian's anger, but then his eyes dropped and his expression softened. Vivian said, Sarah went somewhere. If there's a chance I could see her again, do you think I could find her? Mike and Reese hoisted Jude into the bed of the truck, rolled him over, and closed the gate. Reese stepped around and put a hand on his brother's familiar shoulder. He said, I don't think we can give you any guarantees, but if we don't try, you'll be stuck living as my brother until you just die again. I miss my brother, and so will our parents and friends. With a subtle but playful grin, he added, He has a girlfriend too, you know. Vivian raised the gun toward him. Reese thought he had accidentally crossed a line and would now pay with his life. He pounced backward with his hands up, palms out. No, Vivian said. Take it. Reese took the gun solemnly and turned it over in his hand. He had never held a gun before. It felt heavier than he had expected. It carried a palpable weight of responsibility. Vivian climbed into the passenger seat without any more arguing. Let me see that, Mike said. He was holding a first aid kit he had pulled from under the driver's seat. Reese gratefully handed him the gun. Mike put the gun in his waistband while he dug through the first aid kit until he found a square package containing an alcohol wipe. He tore the package open with his teeth and wiped the gun's grip clean. Then he held the grip through his shirt and wiped down the barrel. After a final look over, he tossed the gun into the grass. You're just going to leave it there? Reese asked. Mike didn't answer, just climbed into the truck. Reese jumped into the bed next to Jude, and they backed out of the parking lot. They passed by the flashing scene of the wrecked police car without incident. Once it was safely behind them, Mike called the police on his cell to tell them he was pretty sure he had just seen a gun laying on the ground in Whaley Park. He was graciously thanked for the tip. Not only did this clear his conscience, it directed the police force's attention to the park and guaranteed them an uninterrupted trip back to the house. Reese noticed Jude was whispering something inaudible over the truck's rumbling wheels and roaring exhaust just beneath them. Hey, Reese barked, no talking. A sinister concentration in Gage's eyes told Reese that the man inside him was up to no good. Jude continued to whisper fast, strange words under his breath. Now a weird feeling invaded Reese's head. He felt like his consciousness was being pushed backwards. His forehead broke out in a cold sweat. He put a hand there and felt his skin burning up like he had a severe fever. He raised an arm which felt heavy and slow and tapped on the rear window. At the next stop sign, Mike leaned out. Everything good? He asked. Jude's voice was easier to hear while the truck idled. Whatever he was saying... It was in a language Reese did not recognize. Mike, something's... something's... His fever-addled brain couldn't connect to his mouth. Mike opened his door to get out, but Reese managed to say, No, drive. He worried if they didn't keep moving, they would never make it. Jude had once used dark powers to trap his wife and himself on Earth. 
It was likely him who had separated Darian and Gage from their bodies while they slept. There was no telling what else he might be capable of. Reese's eyes wanted to close, but he willed them to stay open. In his blurry vision, he noticed the extension cord slipping where it was wrapped around Gage's wrists. Summoning the last of his waning strength, Reese climbed behind Jude and wrapped an arm around his neck. He anchored his other elbow in Gage's back and grabbed his own wrist, the way he had watched someone do online before he and Mike set out on their recovery mission. This move was called a rear naked choke and was supposed to knock a person out without causing any lasting damage. He and Mike had studied the move together in case they should need to incapacitate Jude or Vivian. Jude stopped chanting while he fought against the choke, but Reese was able to leverage his own weight even as his strength faded away. Jude's writhing movement slowed, then stilled. Reese let go when he heard him snore. Instant relief washed the oppressive heat from his brain. His strength returned, fueled by adrenaline now. He wasn't sure how long Jude would stay out and watched him closely as he retied the extension cord around his wrists. He didn't want to have to choke out Gage's brain twice. Mike pulled into the driveway a few minutes later. Jude was still thankfully unconscious. Mike, you go open the door, Reese said. Vivian, I need you to help me with Gate, with Jude. Vivian walked around the back of the truck as Reese opened the gate. Together they dragged the limp body to the edge and Vivian lifted his legs as Reese held up his shoulders. Together they waddled to the front door with Jude hanging between them. Set him on the couch, Mike said once they were inside. He closed the door. As soon as Vivian released Gage's legs, setting his body down on the couch, Mike's arms were around her neck in a slightly clumsier version of the rear naked choke Reese had put on Jude. Darian's eyes went wide with surprise. Vivian tried to say something, but her airway was cut off. She pawed at Mike's arms with Darian's hands, but in the end, couldn't resist the creeping blackness which put her to sleep. Reese was already in action. Before Vivian was fully out, he was turning on the spirit box, which still sat on the coffee table between the two cat balls. You guys still here? He asked. He waited, giving ample time for a response that wouldn't come. Reese yelled into the house, Darian, Gage, come quickly. For another tense moment, nothing happened. Then, one at a time, both cat balls lit up. Is that you guys? Reese asked. Hey, I think this one's waking up, Mike said. He was hovering over Gage's body. Don't knock him out again, Reese said. He could actually be Gage again. Trying, the spirit box said. Suddenly, Gage's body began to spasm. His bound hands pounded into his own stomach over and over. His legs flopped like a fish's tail against the couch's cushions. Darian's eyes fluttered open. Reese was so focused on Gage that he didn't notice. Darian sat up and rushed toward his spasming friend, pushing Reese and Mike out of the way. Reese grabbed Darian's arm to restrain him, but Darian turned sharply toward him. Reese, it's me. I'm back, and Gage is trying to get back too. Reese almost laughed with joy, and would have if they were out of the woods. Gage, come on, push him away, Darian yelled into Gage's ear. What if he's not strong enough? Mike asked. He has to be, Darian shouted back. Reese had an idea. Vivian, he called. Help us. We won't stop until you're at peace, but you have to help us get our friend back. It didn't seem like his pleading helped. 
Gage continued to writhe and jerk while Mike held him down and Darian shouted in his face for over a minute. But then, in a split second, Gage stopped fighting, opened his eyes wide, and sucked in air. Gage? Darian asked hopefully. Gage didn't blink. He stared up at the ceiling. His chest heaved as he drew in enormous breaths that grew more even with time. When his breathing leveled out, he said, I didn't even realize I missed breathing. Did you? He looked at Darian. Darian laughed and shook his head. She did it, Gage said. She saved me. I was going to lose, but she, like, swooped in and pushed him out. For a second, all three of us were in here. He held a hand to his chest. I thought my body was going to explode. Vivian, if you can still hear us, we owe you one, Reese said into the air. We know how we can pay her back. We know how to help her move on, Darian said. He looked at Mike. Got a hammer? Mike told the boys it was probably best for them to be scarce while the police investigated the hidden grave they had uncovered in the basement. Darian and Gage had been able to lead Mike and Reese to the exact spot where Jude had buried Vivian decades earlier. Mike had to break apart some concrete, then they had all dug until they uncovered two parallel arm bones in the dirt under the house. Once the boys had left, Mike called the police. He told them he dug the grave up on his own after having a very vivid nightmare. Vivian, it turned out, also had a traditional grave in a nearby cemetery. Mike temporarily became a local hero after her body was returned to its rightful place. The local paper wrote up a story about the case, prominently featuring Mike. He intentionally left any mention of the ghost hunting team out of his interview. None of them were quite sure what Jude and Vivian had done while engaged in Darian's bodies. But since they learned Reese's car had been used to smash up that cop car they had passed, and that the gun Jude had possessed when they found him in the park had belonged to a detective, they all agreed it was best to erase their involvement in solving the cold case. Reese lied and said he was driving up to meet Darian and got carjacked in the middle of the night at a gas station. Detective Brainerd called Darian after he recovered from his head injury to let him know that he wasn't in any trouble, but that he needed to come in and answer a few questions. Darian apologized and told him he was already on his way back to California. After some hesitation, Detective Brainerd seemed to accept this and told Darian to stay out of trouble. After things cooled down, the team reassembled one last time at Mike's house. They all sat around the spirit box and listened to its pulsating hiss. The other devices they set around the room stayed dark and quiet. After over an hour, without a single response, the boys packed up and left. Mike thanked them on their way out after apologizing for the hundredth time for tricking them. The boys hadn't quite forgiven him yet, but the happy ending helped them leave on neutral terms. What about Jude? Reese asked on the drive back. We know Vivian was laid to rest, but why wasn't Jude still hanging around the house? I'm not surprised he's gone, Gage said. When Vivian pulled him out of me, she did something to him. She, like, changed his color. Huh? Reese asked. Well, on the other side, everything looks like a photo does when you reverse the colors in Photoshop or whatever. You know how purple becomes green and all that? Okay, Reese said. He's right, Darian added. And people all have these colorful auras. Like yours is blue, Reese, and Mike's was yellow. The spirits didn't have human-shaped forms like you'd expect, Gage said. 
They were basically just their auras. Vivian's was green and Jude's was grayish black. But then she did something to him. She turned him like a dark purplish blue and then... And then he just went away. Did she kill him? Reese asked. I don't think you can kill somebody who's already dead, Darian said thoughtfully. But on the other side, everything is tied to feelings and emotions. Like, I felt like I was made of anger and fear. Yeah, Gage interjected. If I had to guess, and this is a long shot, but I think once she knew we were going to help her, that she was going to get to move on, I think she forgave him. And I think that sort of like broke their connection. Like nothing was tying him to her anymore. Without that connection, I guess he just left. They spoke little for the rest of the drive home. Gage quit ghost hunting for good. The Whitney brothers decided they would keep doing paranormal investigations for YouTube, but only well-known locations. No more private contacts. They never made the video of Mike's house for a few reasons. Mainly, fear of prosecution. But also because turning the experience into a video seemed like it would cheapen it. The most exciting parts of the experience couldn't be captured on video, and couldn't really be shared with their audience. They decided to let it rest. There was one other reason they never put out the video or publicly discussed the wild experiences. Even though they knew Jude's spirit had left Mike's house, they couldn't be sure it was gone for good. It was fair to imagine he harbored ill will against them, if he was still out there somewhere. Reese and Darian hoped that if they stayed quiet about him, Jude would continue to leave them alone. And so far, it's working. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram at The Warning Woods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into The Warning Woods. Thank you for listening. five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.